This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Man Cave. By golly, in the piney woods of north central Florida in God's country. On a little bit of a nippy morning, here are we, 54 degrees. That's warm up north, a little nippy here, but we're enjoying a beautiful fall day here in uh, God's country, in and around here, the Man Cave. We're in the Mellon Law Studio. Mellon Law is the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Fighting Gators. We're going to fight Arkansas at noon tomorrow in the swamp. And, of course, we're protected 24-7, 365 by uh, crime prevention, the best you can get. Locally owned, locally managed, that's the way to fly. Well, we are uh, expecting to come have a conversation in a moment with a very busy man who's actually working us into his schedule this morning as he sees patients. I mean, it's really, I think it may be a first time for us with Dr. Richard Kuby, who is the CEO and founder of the Prairie School, uh, a Prairie Spine and Pain Institute. And uh, that is in Priori, Illinois. Uh, you know, this uh, business of being in business in the medical profession is uh, more and more difficult to find yourself independent from the whole big hospital conglomeration corporation. And we're, we're always wary. Uh, we've had Phil Kirpin on talking about this. We're always wary of drifting into, how shall we say it, state medicine. I was speaking with a lady yesterday who knows that world very, very well. Uh, has been to China. China has state medicine, if you will. You don't get any medical care on an individual basis. You are just out there. Take a number. If you think it's bad at Walmart, wow. If you think it's bad somewhere else, we have to take a number. Or you're put on indeterminable hold on a phone. Eventually, you're talking to somebody from some faraway country. Uh you have not seen anything until you've seen state medicine. So hopefully we'll be able to connect here uh, soon. And uh, um, we are um, waiting on production to give me the eyesight. Today is normally our odds and ends. Friday, patching through. Okay, I think Dr. Kuby's coming through. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. <laughs> Kuby. How would you like for me to refer to you? <laughs> Kuby's fine, Doc Kuby, Doc, whatever floats your boat, my friend. Well, Doc, let me give you the warm-up I said. Uh, we uh, are very wary of standardized medical care, sponsored and owned by the state. Uh, we've had many discussions with many people from Barks of Life, physicians, uh, managers, whatnot, that see us drifting to that. Uh, I understand what you've done is counterpoint that by trying to open your own independent world, which it might be a good place to start because I have a couple of stories I can share with you where one was successful and one was unsuccessful um, because of the ever, ever trend toward corporate management ownership. God forbid we ever become China. So um, I'm all ears, uh, Doc, to hear what you're doing and how you've been doing with it. Sure. Well, it's, uh, I guess that's, we'll start there. I guess it's kind of a broad question, but, um, so I'm a spine surgeon, orthopedic background. And early in my career, I felt that I really wanted to focus on spine care. I wasn't really able to do that in a large orthopedic group. So I kind of went out and did my own thing. And over time, really just kind of to maintain independence built out my own facility and et cetera. And I think 
in my mind, I always have been a kind of principled individual and, and really don't take well to administrative types of folks trying to tell me how to practice medicine. And so it really was necessary for me to be independent as I am because um, the things that you're talking about, we're a hell of a lot closer to China than what you might think. Now, China's pretty bad, but, but again, you know, we are further along the slide to that direction than I think most people would know, understand, realize, or even admit to um, because of what the monopolization and consolidation of healthcare services has done in this country, whether it's big corporate or just the U.S. government. And uh, it's, it, it's going to be an increasing problem over time. And we are rapidly, I don't think so much China, but going towards the two-tier type of system that you would see in a lot of Europe. Uh-huh. Well, I've had friends who are doctors in Europe who came here to get their uh, work done because they couldn't get it done in Europe where they actually work for the uh, state system, if you will. Um, they didn't choose to get their Right. <laughs> they didn't get their medical care where they work. Let's put it that way. Uh, how, right. long, how long have you been, so to speak, independent, if that's the right word, uh, if that fits? How long have you been? Out Just about 15 years. 15 years. And you've been in practice Just how about long? February to make 15 years. And so you've been in practice how long? Uh, I, I started uh, practice in 2006, but opened my own independent practice in 2009, gotcha. February of 2009. Well, I'm sure you know a story I'm about to tell you. I have a friend who um, is now in his 80s and retired, I guess, uh, but he didn't really want to retire. He was still seeing people, although he was no longer operating. He was an orthopedic surgeon. And his, um, mm-hmm. his um, group, which he started, was finally got big and it got bought out. And when it got bought out, why um, the people came to him and said, hey, you're only seeing 15 patients a day. Uh, You need to see 40. And he said, wait a minute. These are 15 patients I've taken care of all of their lives. And I take time with them. And, uh, well, that doesn't matter. We really need you to double, triple your your, uh, people you're seeing, your productivity. So he quit. And unfortunately, we lost a guy who – Although he is no longer uh, operating, he was a great surgeon. Uh, he was great counsel. He was great, um, you know, there for you to, to give you good advice. He'd seen practically everything, Doc. He, you know, knew how it goes. Been in practice fifty years. He's seen practically everything, but but you know, they ran him out right. basically. So now you go there, you get, and I don't think the consumer really knows what's happened. And you bring up an interesting point. How would we know, sir, that this is happening? <laughs> I, I guess I, that that's a really good question. Um, I think the way I try and, and handle it or describe it is, for whatever reason, and I think it's just narratives that have been passed over the years, whether it's intentional or just a byproduct, just the kind of word elements and everything we use just drive us into this stupor. You know, uh, medicine's a right, it's an entitlement, it's a what have you, and all these concepts. And so we create this thought and feeling that medicine is sort of this magical industry that doesn't operate and function according to the laws of economics, as would any and every other business, right? And I think people do play to emotions a lot. And that's not to say that medicine shouldn't be emotional. I mean, any doctor who's sitting there with a patient in front of them certainly has plenty of emotion invested in that. But I would say that in general, uh, you know, people don't think about those things in that way. So, again, we're on a news station or a radio station or a podcast and what have you right now. Now, 
if you were the only podcast broadcast worldwide, how differently would you be able to function? Right? I mean, you could do a lot of different things with your advertising that you don't do now. You probably, your programming wouldn't have to be as snappy as it is now. Because what alternative does the listener have? Right? And so value becomes bad. And I think that's the challenge is, is that when we see these big hospital organizations, there's this thought that, oh, well, hey, they're really big. They're going to be able to find this, find that, catch this, catch that. You know, if large bureaucracies were the answer to everything, well, then we would want the government in the middle of everything. And government almost always gets it wrong because we as a people who like consumerism and like to have the freedom of choice in our daily lives, there's no formula, there's no AI, there's nothing out there that could really do the, the microeconomic decision-making that's required to get willing buyers and sellers together on that scale. And no two individuals are alike. And so, uh, you know, certainly a person is a lot more individualized than, say, a diaper or a car. And so when you're having to scale that, it's really impossible to provide any kind of meaningful personalized service if it's a large conglomerate, you know, uh, and, and it's not to say that some of the people in those conglomerates don't want to be able to provide the individualized service, but frankly, just like anything else, when you start to get bigger and bigger and bigger, just for them to be able to manage the processes they are going to all move towards the one size fits all to the assembly line, so to speak. You know, Ford doesn't create millions of custom cars. They create a certain number of very specific types of cars, but in large volume, you know. And so that I think is, is people who really will need to, learn to look at medicine no differently than they look at any other industry or business or service or otherwise, if they really want to start to understand how it functions, how it operates, and how we're encountering the problems that we are in the care delivery system. Because if you follow the money and follow general economic principles, it's really honestly not hard to figure out. Well, you know, you mentioned a couple ideas here that I think are analogous. Let me talk a little bit about the podcasting world. What you're talking about, I think, fits an analogy for us in the podcasting or broadcasting world. Um, the standardization of thought is what we're up against. Uh, we uh, are monitored all the time. I'm a conservative talk show host. By that, I mean I try to bring you the truth. I'm not bringing you an ideology, uh, a truth at the expense of an ideology. Uh, we go where the story takes us. But we've been censored. We're listened to all the time. Um, uh, these platforms are monitored. Uh, we've been uh, banned from YouTube because we dare to have guests on the show that uh, were, we had Sidney Powell on the show who questioned the election. You know, that raised a red flag. So there is this movement that once the government gets involved, there's no other opinion but the government's. And where this takes me in medicine is I've had physicians tell me we would perform that test, but your insurance won't pay for it. And the insurance is Medicare. You know, you've already had that test. You know, that, that, you know how that works. And so they right. want the test. They want the test, but I can't, I won't get paid for the test. How do you deal with that? Well, in my own office, I start to actually educate people, frankly. And just uh, tell them, look, you know, call your politicians. You know, uh, you're, you're supposed to be having a service or not a service. You need to get engaged. You know, I mean, I think for the benefits that, you know, employer-based health plans and a lot of these things have, you know, I think the unfortunate thing is the patient has been removed from the role of consumer. And that is a big part of the problem. And I think it's from a variety of things. I think it's, number one, um, you know, this push, you know, through the 
90s and and beyond where, okay, we're going to try and have low co-pays, low deductibles. You don't have to pay much for an office visit. You know, your health insurance is covered by your employer, et cetera. You live in this sort of weird dream world where you're not actually writing the check for the service that you're getting in medicine. You're not really thinking about it. You know, you're, you're basically, you've created a society of children who've all been handed a credit card and sent into the Toys R Us. Okay, so that created a problem of, of cost because a lot of people just want stuff that they don't necessarily need either. Uh, secondarily, they, they don't take care of themselves the way they maybe should. You know, if I was thinking about what my medical cost might be, perhaps I wouldn't smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. Or maybe I wouldn't have the second chocolate malt. Maybe I would eat a healthier, balanced meal. Perhaps I would exercise. So there are a lot of different choices that we make as individuals, too, uh, that, that aren't helpful in that arena. But I think you've removed the patient from the consumer standpoint. And so they're just not in the middle of it anymore. You're not a part of the decision-making process. And, and as that patient has been removed ever increasingly, now you have the hospital administrators, the algorithms, the whatevers, those are all deciding what happens, when, where, how. And unfortunately, since you don't have the consumers asking the questions, nobody's really sitting there and bothering to ask, well, where are all the dollars going? And so right now you have a system where you're either going to have to start brooming an enormous amount of middlemen who are all with their hand in the cookie jar, you know, or you're going to have to start rationing care. And unfortunately, the average patient has surrendered their own responsibility and personal responsibility over to their insurance agent or their whoever, you know, and, and, and the same thing has happened to the physicians where that autonomy has been taken from them, from the hospital administration. And now you have a system where all these middle people are, are ruling the roost, so to speak. And, I, and I'll give you an idea. So... Since the early 90s, we've seen an increase in healthcare providers by about 100%. We've got maybe twice as many as we had 25 years years ago. Well, in the same amount of time, administration in healthcare has gone up 3,000%. Okay, there is not hardly a meaningful thing that any of those administrators do in the healthcare space that you could point to and say, oh, yeah, that's really making a huge difference. But all of those people all get a paycheck. They're all creating layers of things that now the physicians or the other providers have to do, right? So it's just like any other bureaucracy. You know, I'm here in my bureaucratic position, and I've got to validate that my position has meaning and purpose. Therefore, I've got to create various paradigms that demonstrate how important I really am. Uh, so, you know, now you have a primary care doctor spending half the time that they're allotted for a patient is filling out garbage in an electronic medical record that half the time has no bearing on the care that's actually being rendered at that particular point in time with that particular patient. And so you have a lot of wasteful time, you know, that's being generated to, you know, I guess serve whatever actuarial science parameters that the payers and et cetera want. But, you know, you have a lot of people who are making a lot of money in medicine who aren't really providing any service. And that's causing a lot of the costs that we're dealing with and et cetera. You know, you have another reference to an analogy that I thought might be helpful for the listeners here and viewers to maybe get something from the motor car industry. The electric vehicle is going to fall flat on its face. We've been talking about the fact that we don't want it. Here in the rural country where I am with two tractors, uh, cattle, I can't run a tractor on electric battery, okay? I've got to have diesel. It's already been messed with enough by the environmental controls that diesel is not what diesel used to be. But, you know, all of a sudden, the... Motor car industry has realized, hey, these, nobody wants these electric vehicles. This is all over the Wall Street Journal and everything right now. 
And yet, who's going to pick up the tab? Well, the consumer picked up the tab for the government being in cahoots with the automobile people. And now the consumer is going, the taxpayer, is going to pick up the tab for that thing flopping. And isn't it true that AARP and United Healthcare, um, you talk about us being able as customers to get through to the government when those lobbyists are getting in line in front of us? Well, and that's and that is the challenge. You got all that money sitting there. I, I think, I think like a lot of things, I think it's grassroots. You know, I think ultimately becomes the answer. I mean, that's how all you know revolutions start. And if we're going to say, hey, we would like to have a a healthcare revolution, so to speak, and change the status quo, I think there is some. It, space and area where there is hope. I think one of those areas is direct primary care. I think that more and more people are learning about that. I think more and more uh, measures are being pushed to allow the different tax credits and other things that people use for the remain, you know, health savings accounts, et cetera, that people can apply those to their direct primary care and have better access to that. So I think over time, you know, this will, that will improve. But I, I think that is, that is in my mind, I mean, I'm a specialty uh, provider and, and obviously, you know, that's what I think about on a daily basis, but we've got to reestablish the quarterback and the healthcare chain, so to speak, as an independent person who works for the patient. Right. So when you go to the hospital, you know, or you go to a hospital employed primary care doctor, that person may be a great person. In fact, I'd say by and large, they all are. But knowing a lot of providers who work for hospitals, they're miserable. And a lot of them are miserable because they have a certain number of patients they've got to have on your panel, just like this orthopedic gentleman that you described. They've got a certain number that they've got to see. They've got to put these patients through in a certain time frame. And so if you've got to see a patient every 10 to 15 minutes, and it takes on average seven to eight minutes to deal with the paperwork associated with that patient, what kind of deep dive can you do as a doctor when you have six minutes for a patient? What can you do really? I mean, think about how long it takes for a patient to describe and express the symptoms that they're having. And, you know, are you still taking this medicine? How often? What symptoms are you having from any side effects, et cetera? So you don't have the ability for that doctor to manage complex diabetes anymore. That's now a referral to endocrinology or some metabolic clinic. You know, same thing goes for pain. I see it all the time. Patient has back pain. They did this or this or that over the weekend. Here's some Vicodin. Come back in a month if it's not any better. Oh, it's not better than they show up in my office. Now already on Vicodin for God knows why, you know, but they're on it because that's the easy button for that primary doctor. They don't have time to dig into that and say, well, you know, you don't have to be an orthopedic surgeon or a spine surgeon to figure out whether or not this is a, you know, likely just a sprain strain of your back versus, okay, there's signs and symptoms of a neurologic compression, and now maybe you have a disc herniation and you need an MRI. I mean, those aren't super high-level thought processes. And so we're blown right by that. So your primary doctor has no ability to control those things, and so you end up seeing much far more sick care than actual health care where you're chasing your tail trying to keep up with the problems that have been allowed to get you know, out of control. And, and I think we've got to have that person because without that person, you know, all of these primary care offices are getting bought up. As those get bought up, those owned primary care offices also control all the referrals for all the specialists. So now the specialists have to play ball as well, or they get no referrals and they are essentially run out of business by the hospital systems. That happens all the time. And unapologetically so. Almost everybody I know, you know, 
who has an independent facility. I mean, they've been flat out told by hospital administrators, we're going to try and run you out of business if we can. Right? And they just don't even mix words. They, they tell you that their, their mission in life is to see that you go away. You know, and so it, this is how that system and that really works. And I, I think people have to start seeing this industry just like any other industry uh, where you have people who there are a lot of people who are going to be cutthroat about the money and the dollars. And the reality is if you're doing a good job, you don't have to be that way, you know, but just like any uh, people are going to always be people and you, you can't take the person out of the industry. They're still always going to be there. You have a very good friend who has a story very similar to the one you're talking about. <clears throat> he was on the hospital staff, but he also opened his own clinic, if you will, which became very profitable, bigger. He hired doctors. He worked there some. Uh, it was in the uh, uh, ear, nose, and throat. And the hospital people said, hey, listen, you can't have it both ways. You can't be on the staff here and run that business over there because you're taking people from us. And eventually, what we do, we lost him as a doctor. He sold the business that he built up very successfully, and he quit the staff. And here he is in the prime of his life, medically. I mean, he's not even 60 yet, and uh, <clears throat> we're not using him. There's nobody who can consult with him. Nobody who can get learn from him. And we spent all this money training him and all those years of putting him through, you know, real difficult disciplines. Um, you know, right. it's very frustrating, Doc. I mean, you know, we got a stake in this, too, as the people who are educating the people. And that's a whole nother story. We have a medical school. We have a big teaching hospital here, Shands. And then we have a private hospital, North Florida uh, Hospital. Hospital Corporation of America runs that. Uh, let me just give you a little bit of a story. Uh, so many of my friends are doctors, by the way. Um, I'm 81, by the way, Doc, so you know where I am now. I'm in the twilight of my golden sure. years, right? <laughs> and uh, to get to see the rate, get, to get an MRI at the big teaching hospital here, two months, two months, right? Because yep. right. It, it is seeing, by the way, since it's a teaching hospital, all the indigent care. And there's a whole story that's bothered me. I want to get into a little bit. If you'll hang with us a little bit, we've got to take a break for the weather at the bottom sure. of the hour. But listen, sure. uh, fascinating subject. I've got a chat line going here. As I see their questions, I'll pass them along to you. Talking about Dr. Richard sure. Hughes, who is working us into his busy schedule, greatly appreciated uh, any questions you want me to send along to him, please give me in the chat line. And I'm old enough, I think I just reveal to have my share of stories for the doc <laughs> that are uh, quite interesting and have lots of friends in the medical business. So profession. I, I want to hit that MRI thing when we come back because yes, that, that is a clear and obvious one that we've got going on too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. All right. We're going to be right back and we have Ward's weather report in just a moment and be back with our guest. Stay tuned. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. Thursday, November the 16th, come celebrate the release of our Spurrier's Gridiron Grill, Lugo's Risky Run. This exclusive release features a special spread of our farm-to-table food, rum cocktails, raffles, and a meet and greet with me. Each ticket includes a bottle of Spurrier Single Barrel Select Risky Run. And I'll sign the bottle if you'd like. So get your ticket before they sell out at Spurriers.com. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. 
The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! All right, welcome back to Ward's Weather Report, brought to you by Lewis Oil, sponsoring us great Chevron stations. Fossil fuel, don't be afraid of it. A's, EVs, don't be, you know, buying into that just yet now. We are appreciative of their support and all the sponsors who support us and all the people who donate. Well, 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 we've had a little nippy weather here. Not quite enough to have a cold spell with a fireplace yet. All we have, chop wood waiting. We got 54 degrees. We'll get up to mid-70s here. Perfect weather. Everybody else in the country, I don't want to tell everybody because they'll want to move to Florida. Everybody's moving to Florida out of those Yankee states that are taxing the heck out of people. Uh, the news is, though, they're going to be hitting a frigid spell north of basically what used to be known as the Mason-Disking line. It's going to be cold. And south of it, it's going to be warm. Isn't that weird? Must be climate change or global warming. But that's what we're in for for the next few days in the north versus the south weather-wise. All right. We've been talking to Dr. Richard uh, Cube here in a moment. Uh, it's been a great, candid conversation with a very busy man who's taken time out from his day to share with you any of your concerns. So I'm looking at the chat line to see if you have anything on your mind, and I'll pass it along to our guest. Uh, he and I have been talking off the air a moment ago, and I hit a nerve with uh, the doc when I mentioned the MRI and the radiology, weight, all that. Rich, you want to pick it up there? Sure. I think it's a, it's exemplary of this whole consolidation of services and monopoly scenario. Um, so there are a lot of reasons, you know, why you might have harder times, but getting into these things. But I, I could tell you about five, six years ago, we used to have an independent imaging company here in Peoria, Illinois. We serve about 400,000 people is our metro area in Peoria. It's a couple of big hospital systems, four large hospitals, you know, plus all the other clinics and et cetera, et cetera. But when Peoria Open, when Peoria, uh, Open Imaging was independent and open, I can get same week MRIs all the time. Got them for my patients frequently all the time. Never an issue. That facility was bought out by one of the hospital systems, and overnight the wait went to two to three weeks. And now it's a month, sometimes two months, to get an MRI. Now, that isn't always a big issue, but I could tell you, as somebody, I had a snowmobile accident several years back, and I had a complete rotator cuff tear. So the long-term outcomes of a rotator cuff tear very in a, in a massive tear like I had, you know, it's different whether or not you get fixed in the first two weeks or later than that. 
And so your odds of a failure go up. Well, you know, as a spine surgeon, you know, I'm swinging a two pound mallet overhead all the time in the operating room. And so if I had to wait two months for that MRI, I could tell you that the tendon at that time would have been retracted enough that it would have possibly been inoperable. Okay. Or I'd be looking at a shoulder replacement, which in my line of work, would have made me permanently totally disabled from doing spine surgery as about a 45-year-old guy, you know? And so this consolidation is creating a variety of problems, part of it being that. But again, Independent Imaging Center in Bloomington, about 45 minutes from here, they got about 150, 200,000 people in their community. If I needed an MRI, I might be able to get one this afternoon or for sure Monday or Tuesday next week or something like that. Same thing in Springfield. And so we really need to be supporting the independent imaging centers, surgeons, physicians, facilities. If you as a consumer want to maintain choice, real choice, real active role in your healthcare and a real option, You've got to have the independent providers because when somebody comes to my office, my customer is the guy standing in front of me or the gal standing in front of me or sitting in my exam room with me. That's my customer. If I work for the hospital, that patient isn't my customer because that patient is sent to me by the myriad of primary care doctors that the hospital owns and tells they must send their patients to me. I don't have to earn that referral. I get that referral because I happen to be in that hospital system. So my dynamic is now different. And now my customer is the hospital administrator because I need to keep the hospital administrator happy so that that hospital administrator keeps the faucet on with all those primary care doctors that he or she owns to be able to keep sending those referrals to me so that I can keep seeing patients and getting more patients. And so you can see how that really changes the dynamic in healthcare when you have those different motives. If I don't provide a good product, nobody comes through my front door, I'm out of business. So I have to be focused on the patient and that's not the dynamic you see. And that's again, why you see these wait times go up because the hospital system has a monopoly, where else are you going to go, right? So for them, it's about their bottom line. If they could save some money and make sure that, hey, all of our slots are full, and you know this is fast enough, in our opinion, to get an MRI for these people, it's more about good enough than it is really going above and beyond. And, and you see it not just, the imaging is a very easy way to see it because it's real live time, but that type of thought permeates the entire system uh, in those kinds of large conglomerate care models. And that's a problem. I have a question here, it's coming, it's a pretty good question. Uh, kind of referring family uh, uh, primary care doctor refer to a specialist as with a different hospital or must he refer to the ones attached to the hospital he's attached to? So there are typically going to be very strong incentives placed upon that primary care doctor to send within their own system for everything, okay? So I regularly have patients who see me, so I'm not, I, I don't own, I'm not owned to operate by the hospital. So I, I'm totally independent. And I monthly will see a couple of patients who tell me they had to argue with their doctor to be allowed to come see me. Okay. Because it, it, it's the easy button. If you go down to the hospital, they have a drop down list. So everything's computerized now. So your primary care doctor hits a button, list drops down. Hey, guess what? Only the doctors who are there at that hospital are going to be on that drop-down list. So it creates extra work and effort for not just the physician, 
but probably more importantly, the physician's staff to get you to that doctor that you want to go to. And that's the challenge, right? Because the physician, by and large, he's not on the phone making that call or she's not contacting, you know, the cardiologist saying, hey, you know, I, I'd like to schedule a visit for my patient. That's all being done by clerical staff. And so the hospital systems, even using electronic records and everything, it's built into the system to make it very hard to get out of that system. And there's typically, like I say, financial incentives to the doctors who are employed there. They have quotas, certain numbers of vaccines they need to have done, certain number of tests they need to have ordered, certain number of this that they have, you know, because again, those hospitals know that there are, uh, you know, $15 plus or minus of downstream revenue for every dollar they generate on primary care. And that's where they're making their money. They're, 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 they're trying to churn that system to generate those secondary dollars. So yeah, you're, you're going to have to be an informed consumer and you're going to have to ask and, and sometimes in some cases demand to see who you want to see and hope that your insurance will allow you to see somebody on your own uh, that doesn't require a certain network or otherwise. You've got a couple of good follow-up questions on that. Um, the hospitals have been increasingly staffed by hospitalists. And right. I'm sure you're familiar with that. They don't know you. Correct. Uh, they know the computer. The hospitalist that was there in the morning entered his analysis of the patient, and he goes home or goes wherever he goes at the end of the work day. It's just a work day. Hospitalist in the evening comes in, reads that. Is reading all the care, basically, is the concern this question has, off the computer without talking to the human being much. And that's a term we've got more and more of, do we not? Hospitalist. Um it can't be good. I mean, I don't think where it's antithetical to the notion that my friend had who quit. I've been doctoring these people for 50 years. I know everything about them, you know, but we don't care about that. You know, you got to produce twice as many. So. Sure. I, I have a mixed of, I have mixed thoughts on it. I, I think in some ways the hospitalist system, I think there's, there's needs and benefits to that. And I think some of it's just because of the system we're in, right? So if I'm sitting at a giant facility, you know, here in Peoria, uh, the odds are half the patients that I might have. So I, as a spine surgeon, I've got patients in about 13 or 14 states. Okay. So if I have a patient, I operate on them downtown. Guess what? Their primary care doctor in Colorado is not going to be seeing them pre and post-op downtown here in Peoria. They don't even have a medical license to even practice in, in Illinois. So I would need, in that case, some kind of quarterback for the medical issues that could be encountered in that patient. Okay. Now, so that I think is necessary. But on the flip side, the other thing is you got to talk to the patient. I think also the the way that the margins are driven, you don't have those real true handoffs. And so you don't have the continuity of care that you used to. And just like anything, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot more problems that can happen in a four by one relay on a track than just the guy running a 400 meter dash, right? You know, every baton pass is a potential catastrophe that could occur and and those communications aren't 100%. And those communications don't provide all of that personal history and knowledge of that patient. So you do lose some things. So you, you're kind of trying to walk that happy medium uh, in that scenario. So I think, I think there are needs to have the hospitalist. But at the same time, if you happen to have your primary care doctor around and on staff and otherwise, it would make total sense for them to manage the things for you while in the hospital. But I think by nature of the beast, you know, when the hospital owns all the primary care doctors and all the hospitalists, it's much more efficient for them 
to pay somebody to plant in the clinic and see patients in the clinic all day long and then plant a different individual in the hospital to see all the hospital patients all day long rather than have somebody who has to come in around and then go here and then go there and go otherwise, right? So, you know, the hospital is is driving a lot of that uh, silo type of format because it fits the business model uh, for, for better uh, margins and profitability. We always get this question, too. Might as well give it to you as well. Has Obamacare helped or hurt? Or is it a mixed bag? Hurt. Hurt? Can you? It, 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 it's hurt. I, I think, you know, everybody able to keep their doctor? Was everybody able to keep their doctor? No. Did health care costs go down? No. And, and honestly, it's very predictable, right? Because one of the things that's not discussed, so there were caps I don't know, probably the easiest lay way of putting it's probably oversimplified, but you know, there are set margins that an insurance company can make, okay? But the reality is, is that if I'm, say, Blue Cross, I'll just pick on them because everybody knows what Blue Cross is, uh, but they're all pretty much the same, you know? If I'm Blue Cross and I can make 15% margin, you know, and that's my cap. How do I make more money next year? Cost has to go up, right? I mean, if I'm making 15% of a million this year as a company and I took home $150,000 and I want to take home $200,000 next year for my own self or to grow my business or make it larger, appease the shareholders, the only way to do that is to make the cost go up. Right, so I have to hire more people that generate more administrative costs that dig into my margin, you know, so that you know then charges can go up and costs can go up without affecting that margin you know that's that's the way it's going to happen, and that's why you see you know l- l- look at the s- stock ticker tapes, United Healthcare. Great stock. Should have bought all you could of that back in 2010. You know, uh, a lot of those, it, it's, it's a very expected outcome that would happen. And I think in addition to that, when you have like what I wrote about in Newsweek, the site neutrality issues where a hospital gets paid substantially more for providing the same exact service as an independent place in many instances, it's a very skewed market dynamic, you know? And so now it it makes, it it puts market forces that allow the hospital to consolidate those things more. And as it consolidates, the costs are gonna go up. Costs always go up in a monopoly. Value goes down on a monopoly system. You know, and there's a lot of, you know, and, and again, a hospital does provide a lot of different services and they are very complex but that's why they have a, a lot of complex things they're able to bill and collect for. You know, if you had to go buy Coke this afternoon and you're going to buy a case of Coke, 24 cans, are you going to go visit Walmart or are you going to go to a vending machine? Where are you going to get the best price for your Coke? Well, Walmart could provide the Coke to you for cheaper, right? Why is medicine the only magical place where supposedly it's more expensive to provide the care in a giant hospital setting that has all the advantages of economy of scale, just like Walmart would. I mean, Walmart doesn't just sell Coke. They sell all kinds of different soda. They sell shirts. They sell tires. They sell, you know, produce. They sell, you know, whatever. They have a whole variety of services, but yet they're able to provide that Coke a hell of a lot cheaper per can than a vending machine. And the only damn thing in the vending machine is Coke. So again, it's the economy of scale and, and, and we're removing that, uh, uh, those choices. And, and, and Obamacare is, is pushing a lot of those market forces to consolidate. Because again, I, I think personally, government likes government and it's a lot easier for the government to control five or six different groups than it is five million different groups. So the more consolidation there is, the more ability that there is for the governmental agencies and, and, 
and powers that be to keep everybody kind of in line and keep everybody sort of on the same page. Um, and, and I mean, that's just human nature. Got a couple of interesting uh, takeoffs on this. I've never seen this. Is there any country <laughs> that's doing it right? I, I don't know of any, but uh, are we the last to try to do it? You know, where, where are we in this whole continuum, if you have any perspective on that? I mean, realistically, we're, pro- I mean, we're still the, we're still the best place to get care. And you'll see a lot of things touted, you know, and people like to throw a lot of numbers. I mean, you know, as somebody who still edits journals and <laughs> you make statistics kind of look how you want a lot of times. Uh, but what I would say is you've got to really look at the full burden amount of the data. You know, there's nobody leaving, flying from here to Canada to get their knee done. Right. Okay. Doesn't happen. People do come from Canada. I mean, there are whole business models built on medical tourism to the United States. So the only time we have people that I'm aware of in any kind of numbers of any kind leaving the United States to go somewhere else for care, it's usually for some type of treatment that is held up at the FDA and is available maybe in Europe or, or in the Caribbean or, or somewhere where you might be able to get treatment there that you can't get elsewhere. Great example. When I was a young kid, my mom had cancer. We did go down out of country to get, you know, an immune augmentation therapy for her cancer, right? I mean, anybody who's around cancer now knows that, you know, we're using the immune system in so many different ways to battle cancers, yet... When my mom was ill with cancer 30-some years ago, if you were going to talk about doing something to the immune system, you were a lunatic and a quack and run out of the country, more or less. So those are the situations where you have maybe uh, people leaving the country. But, you know, we as Americans, you know, uh, the challenge is, is how we are doing and how we're dealing with the care. We don't spend a lot of time with primary care, right? So, again, we're doing sick care, not well care. Uh, and healthcare, and that's why a lot of you know our outcomes may be worse. People talk about you know infant mortality rates, or people talk about you know our life expectancies. I don't know, getting an airplane and go over to Europe. You know, I would say if you took the average American and dropped them in the middle of Germany, they would be one of the fattest two percent people in the market square that they're standing, and that's just reality. So I think within a year or two, Colorado is the only state left, I think. But in a year or two, Colorado also will fall where the average person in the United States in every state is obese. Really? That drives medical costs. Obesity drives diabetes is one of the most expensive things that we deal with. Drives a whole myriad of diseases, a lot of cardiovascular disease, you know, I mean, frankly, the U.S. system is very good, and it's good in spite of how bad we are to ourselves with the habits and behaviors that we have. Uh, You know, you you can't ask somebody who's 100 pounds overweight to get the same long-term, you know, how's that person going to live to 80 like the guy who's fit in Finland is living to 80? You know, Uh, I mean, we saw it during COVID, or I certainly did. COVID, the stores were empty, right? Not in the produce section. <laughs> I didn't have any problem finding broccoli and beets and, you know, asparagus and things like that. But, but you know, it looked like locusts hit the frozen food section. <laughs> but that's how we are, you know. And so a lot of that, if you take those kind of components out and try and normalize, I think you would find that our care is still pretty amazing and you still have a lot of choice in what you can have done, what you can't have done. I think the challenges are just the market forces that we're allowing to permeate the system are driving a lot of unnecessary cost that doesn't have to happen. I can tell you if you go downtown to the hospital, you're going to pay $200,000 for a spine fusion that you can get at my facility for thirty-eight grand. Same damn procedure. And I've been doing outpatient spine now for over 10 years. I, you know, and there's still nobody here in town doing a meaningful amount of it because, you know, there's no, 
There's nothing pushing them to do that at the hospital. There's nobody else here in town really doing it. We've got probably 10 spine surgeons, but why aren't they doing it? Well, because the hospital wants you to stay in the hospital for two or three days because that's how they get paid more. So, the, but, but at the end of the day, the business who's self-funded, self-insured paying for John Doe or Mary, uh, Mary Smith to have that back fusion, they just spent that money out of their business to get that fusion paid for. And what did they get for it? No real value, right? I mean, they, they just overspent by $160,000. So that comes out of their bottom line. It adds to uh, what they're going to have to pay their stop-loss carrier. Uh, it, it drives all the costs. And that's why you see, you know, year on after year, 8 9 10% increases in healthcare premiums for all these employers and their employees. So we could eliminate, if we could, again, bring free market principles in and, again, quarterback things with direct primary care and free market thinking people, we can cut a lot of the costs and actually provide even more care while doing it. And that, I think, is the answer long term. Uh, because, again, when you centralize things, there's no central planner who's ever going to be smart enough to figure out how to allocate those resources appropriately. And that central planner is always going to have the bias of their own personal secondary gain. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. We're just about out of time, uh, Doc. And uh, sure. certainly sometime maybe we'll have you back. I hope I kept you going with some good questions. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and the chat questions and stuff online, those are always good because it's always interesting to know what people are thinking about out there. You know, certainly I come on the line, you know, I think about this stuff all day, every day. And, you know, as you can probably tell, I've got a pretty big soapbox <laughs> that oh, I stand on, uh, you know, but it's really frustrating when you see how it's changed where, you know, it, and I'm not alone in this, where when I was going through medical school, everybody around me, I mean, I was the first person to go to college in my family. So I was a little different, but, you know, you second, third generation physicians all over the place. I told my kids that I wouldn't pay for medical school if they wanted to go <laughs> because they should stay out of medicine. I know. I hear that's, that. That's where we are in 25 to 30 years, right? Because, you know, I happen to be doing what I'm doing. I'm independent. But mm -hmm. honestly, if I had to start my practice tomorrow with the regulation currently in place, I couldn't do it. And to just be frank, I, my soul is worth too much to throw in with these large hospital systems. Won't do it. And so that's really what's driven me to give the narrative that I have to my kids. And so I've got, you know, one going into business, one going into law, one going into engineering, you know, none going into medicine. And that is by design. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, maybe they, maybe one of them would have decided to do it, maybe one wouldn't, but when you got dad telling you from the time you could understand English, don't do it. At what point is that my idea versus your own idea, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, and, that, and that's part of the challenge that we're, we're encountering. You know, uh, physician burnout's real. Suicide rates for physicians are higher than any other subset of the population uh, in the professional world. Um, and a lot of it is that. People are conflicted with what they know they should be morally doing and be able to do for their patients and what they're being told they have to do. And that is a big problem. Well, that's a great way. They're being told they have to cho choose between the, the livelihood of their family and doing the right thing. And that, is a, and that is a challenge. That is a challenge. Most people aren't going to have the ability or, or the moral fortitude to, you know. I hear you. To do, to do to do the moral moral thing, and that's not me sitting on some kind of high horse. I mean, that's why you know you've got a half a dozen you know canonized saints born in the United States. But we've got a you know a couple million millionaires, right? I mean, it's just human right. nature. I'm not trying to be overly critical of these people. I understand exactly where they're coming from, 
And these are incredibly hard choices that, frankly, they shouldn't have to make. You know, well, and that's, time, why, that's, that's a, why you see the burnout. That, that's a great way to conclude a good summation. We're out of time. Certainly enjoyed it. Uh, we'll send along a link. Likewise. To and have a great day, Doc. Take care. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.